Good morning. I think I'd like to just say thank you to you all first. It's just so wonderful to be part of the body here. I've lost count of how long I've been, how many weeks, and I don't care. But I have felt your love, and, and particularly last, last weekend, the weekend before, I've lost track of that as well. But I was away in, in Yorkshire, and that's always a difficult situation, or has been till now. Um, I visit there occasionally because I have three children, um, and I have family in, in West Yorkshire. And usually it's a little stressful. I went out this time in peace. I knew God was there. Uh, there was no acrimony. In fact, the time I spent with my children and my ex-wife was, was a beautiful time in the Holy Spirit. And I believed, I strongly felt that I was being prayed for. And I kind of think maybe Calvary Chapel Portsmouth had something to do with it. It was just very, um, I could just feel that support in the Holy Spirit. Hanukkah. Well, I think before I um, get into it, I'd just like to share a few words about uh, my interest in Judaism, and, and perhaps it seems quite intense to some of you at times. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, Barry shared the good news about um, he enjoy expecting a happy event, and my first word was nearly Masseltoff. And before it came out, I thought, well, Barry might not get that. Congratulations. <laughs> uh, growing up from time to time, my mother would from time to time speak about our apparent Jewish heritage. This was usually when I was in trouble, which was quite a lot. Mum would remind me of the dire consequences had Adolf Hitler's forces reached these shores. Uh, Mum's great-grandparents, the Hours, had immigrated from Germany to the UK in the 1860s. And other rabbis define a Jewish person as one who has a Jewish mother. Uh, the Hours were my mother's mother's maternal grandparents, so i let you figure that out for yourselves, but I, I think you get the picture. Uh, during my second year as a child, I became unwell and had to spend time in hospital, during which I underwent circumcision, and I felt later that God had actually got me where he wanted me. In the late 1980s, early 1990s, I attended Chichester Christian Fellowship, and two lovely folks from there, a married couple. She's, she's gone home to be with the Lord now, but he's, he's still around. He's in Bournemouth. Uh, they were praying with me, and they suggested I should actually explore this Jewish background. Before it had been kind of academic, I was aware of it, told my children about it, but it had been sort of academic. So I started to sometimes pop down to uh, the Orthodox Synagogue in Portsmouth, I, I would, was working in Essex at the time, and I'd pop into an Orthodox shul in, in Essex sometimes for the high holidays. And then in 1994, I found myself working in Los Angeles and was directed to Ahavat Zion Messianic Synagogue. I attended there for a couple of years, and later when I was working in L.A. In LA again, um, in the early 2000s, I attended uh, Ahavat Zion for several years. Loved the people there and felt very much at home. However, in more recent years, my mum has been studying our family history, and uh, the Hours are a particularly difficult family to trace because, because they come from Germany, so any records there were in a foreign language, and she couldn't even find the ship on which they came to the UK. But she did eventually track down some information about them, and she phoned me one day to say, I have some bad news for you. Two of the Hours were married... Uh, in a Lutheran church. Okay. Could be explanations for that. And then later on she told me, oh, one of the hours was baptized in a Lutheran church. Mm, this is not looking very Jewish. 
And later she's in conversation with me and said, um, if you would like to be buried in New York City when you pass, you could be because one of the hours bought a tomb there. It's a family tomb and he's the only one interred there. Oh, and by the way, it's in a Lutheran cemetery. So at this point, I said, well, we may have to accept that perhaps the hours weren't Jewish after all. It had been a belief in our family for four generations, but it may not have been correct. I'm actually not that bothered. I could do a DNA test, but it, part of my emphasis I've felt for a long time in the spirit is the emphasis on, on appreciating the Tanakh or Old Testament and the Jewish background to who we are. And it feels a little less selfish doing it as a Gentile than doing it as a Jew. So I'm really not that, that, that fast. I just believe that, that we are who we are in the Lord and we just accept that. So that's fine. So back in Torah, or as some uh, Christian theologians call it, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, specifically in Exodus and Deuteronomy, God gave Israel uh, f- seven feasts. Uh, they were... Uh, Passover, Pesach, Hamatzot, or unleavened bread, first fruits, Shavuot, or Pentecost, trumpets, Yom Kippur, or atonement, and Sukkot, tabernacles. And they were actually grouped of three coming in the spring, there's one a bit later in the summer, and then there are three in, in the fall. Now, the Jewish people, like any other people, they have history, uh, just as we do, and events happen in our history, we, we add a day to the calendar to commemorate it. For example, we have November the 11th. And likewise, events happened, and more holidays were added. Specifically, or among them, um, in the springtime, there is Purim, uh, or Lots, uh, which celebrates God's deliverance of Israel under Mordecai and Queen Esther. And then here in, in the, at the end of our year, actually, yes, the end of our year, in the Jewish month, Chislev, uh, there is Hanukkah. And this Tuesday, December the 10th, is the start to that eight-day feast. And Jewish families all over the world will gather each evening to celebrate. They will exchange gifts. They will eat potato latkes and jam donuts they call it Sufkanyot, which sounds less fattening in Hebrew than it does in English, but they, they're just the same. The emphasis is on foods made with oil, and I think you'll come to see why that is this morning. Some will play a game with a four-sided, four-sided spinning top called a dreidel. Each side of the dreidel has a Hebrew letter. The letters are Nun, Gimel, Hey, and Shin, which together make an acronym for Nez Gadol Haya Sham which means a great miracle happened there. The family will have a candelabra with eight candles and a ninth extra, distinct one. The candelabra is called a Hanukkah. And the ninth candle is called the Shamash, or servant. And that name might remind you of someone. In Revelation, it talks about the seven candlesticks representing the seven churches, which he's dictating letters to, and he moves about them. Um, Our righteous Messiah moves about them. Uh, being the servant of his father, keeping those candlesticks in order. This shamash, the first evening, is taken, it lights one candle. The second evening, it lights two candles. By the eighth evening, eight candles are lit. The events remembered at Hanukkah occurred during the intertestament period. So we don't actually have much of a historical record in our scriptures of when it happened, except that we do, because it was prophesied. And the events are very clearly given in prophecy. 
in the book of Daniel, chapter 11. So we'll go to our lovely slides made by Pastor for me. Okay. So, the Persian Empire had fallen. Alexander the Great had conquered the then-known world, all the way from North Africa and Greece across to India. And having conquered the then-known world, by the time he was only 33 years old, he travelled back towards Greece. He reached Susa, the capital of Persia, which had fallen to him, and he destroyed the city when he conquered it. And he was so sad that he saw what his army had done. He regretted destroying the city of Susa and started on a drinking bout. And at 33 years old, Alexander drank himself to death. Pretty sad, really, to, to be such a great man, to die that way. The age I find very interesting because our righteous Messiah died at 33 years old and how much more he achieved at that age. <clears throat> so when he died, he left no successor. I think his wife was Roxanne of Persia, but they, they didn't leave an offspring. So his four leading generals each took a quarter of the, the empire. Uh, Cassander took Macedonia in, in Greece, the home territory, to the west. Asimachus took Thrace, Bithynia, and most of Asia Minor. Ptolemy, Egypt, Cyrene, Arabia, and Petraea to the south. And to the north of Israel were the Seleucids, Seleucius, and that's Syria and the lands east all the way to India. And we see here the, the line of Ptolemy and the line of the Seleucids. Really, we won't go into them. But several generations passed till we come to about the 170s, 160s BC. And today we're going to just discuss the one in the final line of the Seleucids, Antiochus IV or Antiochus Epiphanes. And he may have been the most evil man that ever lived. I have to say, every time I read about an enemy of the Jews, I think, can someone get worse than this? Sennacherib was a character to be reckoned with. Uh, but this one was particularly nasty. And if we look at Daniel chapter 11, verse 31, and these events are historically verifiable, and forces shall be mustered by him, this is Antiochus, and shall defile the sanctuary fortress. Then shall they take away the daily sacrifice and play there, place there the abomination of desolation. And immediately there should be a question in some of your minds, but didn't our righteous Messiah talk about the abomination of desolation coming in the future? And yes, he did. A lot of prophecy has a local fulfillment near to the time and a distant fulfillment. And that distant fulfillment is still to come. And some of Daniel 11 could only apply to someone we call the Antichrist. But the early parts clearly were fulfilled also by Antiochus. So in 175 BC, Antiochus IV, or Epiphanes, and Epiphanes actually in the Greek is implying he was calling himself a god. He was like Antiochus the Great or Antiochus the Divine. He thought he was a god. We call him a Syrian, but he was a Hellenized Syrian. He was, he was actually of Greek heritage. Uh, his, his culture was, was Grecian. He ascended the throne in 175. In 169 BC, he fought a campaign against Egypt. Now, he won, but despite his victory, he was compelled to withdraw. Uh, he withdrew at the behest of Rome. Now, Antiochus, when we talk about someone who's called Antichrist, I sometimes think, wish that the Christian theologians hadn't used that term because actually he was, he's more Antichrist. Antichrist is someone against Christ or Messiah. Antichrist is someone instead. 
And this man comes, he's going to seem like the answer to the world's dreams. This Here's a leader who can unite, bring people together. Um, Antiochus Epiphanes actually started out with peace treaties. Uh, he brought the Ptolemies into a peace treaty with him. They thought the world would have peace. They always negotiated in bad faith. It was never his intention to keep those treaties. Um, the Ptolemies negotiated in bad faith as well. They had no intention of keeping their side. So it, it uh, reminds me a little bit of uh, in the 1930s, uh, the National Socialists in Germany negotiating with the Soviet Socialists in Russia and, and having a peace treaty that they had no intention of keeping, but it got them where they wanted in the short term. So he finally did go to war against Egypt, 169 BC, but he, ha he had to let go. Now, you've all heard the expression, a line in the sand. And someone will say to you, that's as far as this goes, this is the line in the sand. Well, this is where it comes from. As Antiochus and his army marched towards Alexandria, they were met by three Roman senators, led by Gaius Popilius Linnaeus in Eleusius, the suburb of Alexandria. There, Roman ambassador Popilius delivered to Antiochus the Roman Senate's demand that he withdraw from Egypt. Now, until that time, the world had been Hellenistic, it had been Greek. But there was a new kingdom rising, Rome. And Rome was powerful, and you didn't want to cross swords with Rome. Now, Antiochus said, I want time to think about this. And the Roman senator drew a line in the sand around Antiochus and said, you do not leave that circle until you give me an answer. And, of course, this seemed terribly arrogant, uh, but um, Antiochus didn't have a lot of choice. If he crossed that line, he wasn't just at war with Egypt. He was at war with Rome, and he knew better than do that. Today, we would say it's rather like um, the 39th parallel in, on the Korean Peninsula. We have a very evil man uh, in North Korea, and he knows if he sends his army south across that demilitarized zone... He's not just at war with South Korea, he's at war with the United States and her allies. And that gives him pause. I just pray that he, he, he retains that pause, because it, with the consequences, if he does cross that line, are horrible. <clears throat> and forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defy the sanctuary fortress, and they shall take away the daily sacrifice and place there the abomination of desolation. Jerusalem, the fortified city, and high in the city, uh, the temple... And that was the place, you know, when you read in Torah or the first five books, sometimes it seems academic. You read about these sacrifices. You read about the daily life. It's actually quite wonderful. You get the nitty-gritty of daily Jewish life. But to Israel, it wasn't academic. This was the way of life from the exodus from Egypt right the way through to Calvary, where sacrifices made every day. It was very specific ways to live, foods that were permitted for Jewish people, Israelites. Um, it wasn't academic to them, it was real, it was their life. And it was their relationship with the God of heaven, the God of Israel. So Antiochus, on his return from Syria, uh, had been humili humiliated by Rome, and he can't pass through Judea. And here was a people he could bully and humiliate, a small people, a people seemingly significant. He didn't know who their God was, but he did know that they were, in his eyes, a weak people. So he surrounded Jerusalem with a great force. He killed vast numbers of men, women and children. Those who followed the Grecian culture were spared. 
Uh, they thought they'd be safe. I think that was a foolish assumption because, again, he always negotiated in bad faith. But those who stayed loyal to the God of Israel um, were slaughtered. He desecrated the temple and stopped the daily sacrifice. On the 15th of Kislev, or December in 168 BC, the Syrians built a pagan altar above the altar of burnt offering. If you're probably all familiar with the, the temple, uh, the ordinary Jewish person could just come into the gate and then there was a temple of burnt offering and they could bring his lamb or whatever sacrifice, turtle doves, the priest would sacrifice it on his behalf. Uh, and only the priest could go into the holy place and the holy of the holies only the high priest could go into. Well, he desecrated that area. He, he built a pagan altar where the altar of sacrifice was. He put in the holy place, he, he put an image of, of Zeus. Now, I don't know if he realized the spiritual significance of that. He was doing it to offend the Jewish people, and he succeeded. It was highly offensive. Antiochus commanded that only swine be sacrificed on his altar or anywhere in Jerusalem. He personally poured pig fat over the scrolls of the law and the altar, and he thoroughly polluted the temple of the living God. Syrian officers and supervisors were dispatched into every city and village to enforce the cruel and blasphemous decrees of Antiochus. In effect, Judaism was outlawed. The Jewish people rebelled. A faithful remnant defied Antiochus. Antiochus became known as Antiochus the Wicked. So, 1132... And such as do wickedly against the covenant shall he corrupt by flatteries. But the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. So many of them were Hellenized. They ingratiated himself and themselves to the, the uh, Syrians, the Grecians. But there was always a remnant, and there always is a remnant. I can assure you there's a remnant among the Jewish people today those that trust our righteous Messiah. And there may be more than you think. There was a lady I knew well from my mother's generation uh, at Zion. She may not be with us anymore. She might be at home with the Lord. But one Passover, she decided she would actually go and spend Passover amongst an ultra-Orthodox community in Jerusalem. So off she went, and she stayed with them, and she had the Passover meal. And a lady leaned across the table, apparently an ultra-Orthodox lady, didn't show her hair, always wore a wig, because that's what ultra-Orthodox Jewish ladies do. I whispered to her, how long have you been a Yeshua worshipper? So they're there, we just don't always see them. Those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. So those who complied and adopted the Hellenistic culture and idol worship were told they would be okay. But a man called Mattathias, or Matthew, a Kohen, or a priest, a descendant of Aaron, and his five sons, Eleazar, Yohanan, Shimon, Jonathan, and Judah, led the revolt against Antiochus. Judah became known as Judah the Maccabee, or Judah the Hammer. I think that must have been quite psychologically intimidating. You're, you're the Greeks, and you're in your fortress, and you've conquered the land and feel safe, but there's this thorn in your side. Do you go out at night, because Judah the hammer might be out there. I, I, I think it was intimidating. So one day, five years after the Egyptian campaign, a Pelis and enforcement officer arrived in the small town of Modin, three miles north of Jerusalem. 
He commanded the Hebrews to sacrifice swine. Matthew the Maccabee, enraged by the decree, killed the first Jew about to comply. Then Matthew and his five sons fell on Apelles and the group of soldiers and slew them all. Incredibly brave. I mean, this reminds me of uh, David and Jonathan standing against the, Philipp- the, Philipp- the Philistines or, or um, Gideon with his small army. Just a family of five standing against the Syrians. But this spark started a Jewish uprising against their enemies and the enemies of Adonai, our God. I'll bring you some clarity there. Um, in synagogue, when someone's called up to read from Torah or read from the prophets, the, you know what the tetragrammaton is, God, God's name, the four letters, yud Hey vav Hey. when they see that in the scripture, they never pronounce it. They always substitute Adonai. It simply means Lord. And the uh, same, if you read in the Jewish prayer book, the Siddur, you always see God addressed as Adonai. Afterwards, when you're having coffee at the back of the synagogue, uh, you will address God as Hashem. If you're talking about God, you're talking about Hashem. Shem means name. Ha is a definite article. Hashem, the name. Shortly after this, Matthew died. His son Judas and Maccabee assembled a considerable number of courageous Jews and went to war against the Syrians. And remember, the Syrians were the crack army of their time. They were the world power. They were the ones who had the modern weapons. And yet... A small Jewish band made war against them. We've seen this actually in our own times. If those of you who were alive, or those of us who were alive in 1967, saw the vast armies of the Arab world raged against Israel, and it didn't look like Israel could win. And of course, after said, well, Moshe Dayan was a wonderful general, and they had this, they had that, they had intelligence. The hand of God was in that. They shouldn't have won that war. So... The once timid and despairing now flocked to the side of Judah. Verse 33. And then, and they that understood among the people shall instruct many, yet they shall fall by the sword and by flame, by flame, by captivity, by spoil many days. Those that understood, the Levites, the Kohenites, the descendants of Aaron, the tribe of Levi, they understood. It was for them to preserve the law and the prophets. They gave the instruction. And yet, this was not an easy war. People were being captured, tortured, slain at the the sword. And this went on for a year at least. I think about two years actually. Whenever Antiochus' men found copies of Torah, they tore them to pieces and burned them. Whoever was found in possession of a Torah was put to death. According to Antiochus IV decree, women, had their children, women who had their children circumcised were put to death and then the family was put to death. Still, many in Israel chose to die rather than break the Holy Covenant. A challenge to us. You know, <laughs> sometimes someone at work will make a negative remark, a disparaging remark about Christianity or... Uh, someone handing out tracts. Who does that in these days? Oh, I'm persecuted. We're not persecuted. We have to put up with so little. Sometimes it feels like our culture is going the wrong way, and it is going the wrong way. But people in, in uh, North Korea, People's Republic of China, they know what persecution is. 
Now when they shall fall, they shall be aided with a little help, but many shall join them by intrigue. What this is saying is that where those who were loyal and faithful and got behind Judas, Judah Maccabee, But there were a lot of people who just wanted to be on the winning side. And he got a lot of followers who weren't really that interested in him or serving God. They were interested. If the Maccabees won, they wanted to make sure they were on the the winning side or there could be trouble afterwards. And yet there was a faithful element. In Gideon's day, God gave him instructions on how to deal with that. And he thinned his army out just to the 300 right, right men that God wanted. Uh, Judas Maccabee didn't have that. So he did have a lot of followers who, who were there while the going was good. If the Syrians had looked like winning, they would have quickly changed sides. It was, it was not a good situation. In 167 BC, Judas Maccabee defeated the large army of Antiochus general Apollonius. This victory helped Judah gather a sizable force, although only a minority of his men were faithful. Next, Seron, the commander of the Syrian army, came against the forces of Judah. The Maccabees also defeated his army. Judah's fame spread all the way to Antioch. King Antiochus was greatly angered by the exploits of Judah and his men and gathered his army. He opened the royal treasury and gave his soldiers a year's wages, ordering them to be ready for whatever action needed to be taken. Now, he's losing his marbles. Because he emptied his treasury. He was so angry with, with the Jewish people, he emptied, his, he emptied their treasury to send an army to see that they were defeated. He intended to see the end of the Jewish people. This approach quickly emptied the royal treasury of funds and made it necessary for Antiochus to seek additional tribute and spoil from his lands. In 166 BC, he decided to go to Persia to collect, by, to collect or seize by, by force the needed money. Antiochus left his general Lysias in charge of his son and half of his army with instructions to attack and destroy Jerusalem and Judea. Lysias sent an army of 40,000 infantry and 7,000 cavalry marching into Judea. And this was not a Mickey Mouse army. This was the real thing. This was like facing the United States Army today. This, This was one of the four armies in the world that you did not want to be facing. He met the forces of Judas Maccabee 3,000 poorly equipped men near Emmaus. However, despite being vastly outnumbered, Judah's army routed the Syrians, killing 3,000 and putting the rest to flight. We were reading these events in prophecy, but they could be just like the history when we read uh, in the book of Judges about just a few men faithful to God, putting their enemies to flight. These are heroes of the faith, just like those men we read about in... in, uh, in Judges and later in the Kings. <clears throat> in 165 BC, Lysias again sent the Syrian army, now numbering 60,000 infantrymen and 5,000 cavalry against the Jewish forces, which had risen to 10,000. <clears> this time, 5,000 Syrians were killed and Lysias fled back to Antioch. Because of this great victory, Judah and his men were able to recapture the temple. So they'd now got Jerusalem and they had the temple. Absolute turning point in the war. You have your capital back. Really, this is victory. The rest is a mopping up operation. That's how a normal army would see things. And some of those of understanding shall fall to try them and to purge and to make them white, even to the time of the end, because it is the time yet appointed. I put that verse in because at this point, it's clearly looking forward 
to the time of the end when Jesus talks about, you see the abomination of desolation. From this point onward, this chapter in Daniel is pointing out events. It's looking at events which are yet to come. I suspect quite soon yet to come, but we don't know. So we've actually dealt with the period that we're interested in, Antiochus Epiphanes. So finally, the Jewish revolt against the Seleucid monarchy was successful. The temple was liberated, cleansed, and rededicated. So they had to clean that thing out, both ceremonial and literally clean it out from the horrible abominations that had been there, the pig's fat and whatever was there, the, the uh, detritus left by the Syrians. But they cleaned it, rededicated it. A new altar was built in place of the polluted one. New holy vessels were built or made. And oil was needed for the menorah because that was kept alight in the holy place continually, seven days a week, 354 days in a Jewish year. We'll talk about that one day. But it was always a light. <clears throat> it's actually a picture of our righteous Messiah, the, 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 the light of the world. But they only had oil for one night. And it was going to take several days to make up more oil. But they put the oil they had in the lamp and lit it. One day's supply of oil burned for eight days. And when it had finished, they had a fresh supply of oil it was the prescription for the oil is given in Deuteronomy, is very specifically made, and that oil was made, and temple worship could go on. Eight is the number of resurrection. Oil is a type of the Holy Spirit. You may think these are just historic events. I believe God resurrected his own testimony. What happened to Antiochus Epiphanes? In 164 BC, Antiochus' army was defeated at Elemius, Lemaeus, Elemaeus, in Persia, when he attempted to plunder the city of its gold and silver. Soon thereafter, a messenger came from Antioch and notified him of the defeat of his armies by Judah Maccabee and the Jews. He'd been defeated by the Jews, such a little people. He'd been defeated by the Jewish God, who's not a little God. Terribly shaken by these events, he fell sick and became bedridden. Antiochus IV died shortly afterwards. It reminds me of the, of the Herods standing against, against Jesus. They thought they were the kings of Israel, yet they came to very sticky ends. They died. Yet one of them fell and his insides fell out. So, does Hanukkah have any endorsement or, or validation other than the events prophesied? I'm glad you asked that question because absolutely Hanukkah or dedication is mentioned in the New Testament specifically in John Yohanan, chapter 10 verses 22 and 23 let me backtrack for a moment we have historical records of the Maccabees in particular uh, Josephus would have recorded them Josephus, if he gives you an event, it actually happened. But when he describes it, never take him literally. He loved to exaggerate. If he recorded a battle, he always made it more flowery than it really was. The forces were always... He loved writing chapters about great battles. It's not a good source in that sense, but you can read Josephus, and if he says a battle happened in Jewish history, it happened. Maccabees, a little more accurate. Maccabees is a problem book for us because our Catholic friends 
for a while actually had it in the Holy Scriptures. I believe it's gone now, um, but it's not, it's not inspired, it's not special, it's only a history book. It does give a very clear record. It's talking about Antiochus, and he took the strong cities of the land of Egypt, and he took the spores of the land of Egypt. And after Antiochus had ravished Egypt in the 143rd year, that's not in our calendar, not in the Jewish calendar, he returned and went up against Israel. He went up to Jerusalem with a great multitude, and he proudly entered the sanctuary. Even the Israelites shouldn't have entered the sanctuary. They could just come to the entrance. But he went in anyway, and took away the golden altar and the candlestick of light, and all the vessels thereof, and the table of proposition, the table where the showbread was put there every day by the priest, <clears throat> and the pouring vessels, and the vials, and the little mortars of gold, and the veil, and the crowns, and the golden ornament that was before the temple, and he broke them in pieces. And he took the silver and gold, and the precious vessels, he took the hidden treasures which he found, and when he'd taken them all away, he departed to his own country. And when he'd made a great slaughter of men, and spoke very proudly, and there was a great mourning in Israel, and in every place where they were. So throughout the Jewish world, not every Jew was in Israel. Some were scattered throughout what had been the Persian Empire, was now the, the Grecian Empire, or the Grecian Empires, four of them now. So that gives us an historical record, but it's, it's pretty well attested to in secular history anyway. <clears throat> of course, secular historians don't believe, um, don't believe the miracle of the eight days. I do because it's so typical of God and the pieces fit so perfectly. And I love reading from Daniel. Daniel is such a special man. We've been reading about Joseph. Daniel is a very similar man, so faithful. And he had an even harder time than Joseph had. Um, taken as a young teenager from everything that's familiar, his family, his surroundings, his religion, put into the university in Babylon to learn to advise the emperor made a eunuch. I think most men here would rather die than that. I mean, his life was nothing. Yet throughout his life, he was consistently faithful to God. Wonderful man. And the modern theologians, the critics, the liberal theologians, they tear him to pieces. His book can't be true. It must be a forgery. It must have happened after the events, not before, because the prophecy is so accurate. Well... God can tell things before they are. He can speak things that aren't yet, and they will be. And we know Daniel's reputation in heaven. The liberal theologians may not like him, but in heaven he has a rather good reputation. It tells us that Gabriel came from the throne room of God, looked at Daniel and called him a man greatly beloved. Who cares what the theologians think? He's a man greatly beloved. That's God's opinion. Anyway... Back to the New Testament. Rit Hadashah, the New Covenant. And we're in the book of John. And John is the gospel that presents our Messiah as God. Matthew shows him as the king, the king of Israel. Mark is the servant, he's God's servant. Mark gets on with God's business. It's a short gospel, but it's a gospel of action. Luke, written by Dr. Luke, is about Jesus the man. And gives us great detail of the life of this man. But John presents Jesus as God. He's very man of very man, but also very God of very God. And it's in this gospel that we read, and it was at Jerusalem 
the Feast of Dedication or the Feast of Hanukkah, and it was winter. Yes, we know it's winter. <laughs> this side of the equator, I believe the further north, they, they're under snow at the moment. I saw a report on the BBC the other day, they were speaking from Northern Ireland, and there was snow on the streets. So it's winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch, or Shlomo's portico. That is so significant. It's not just some sort of coincidence. You see, Jesus had his ministry in the Galilee and the Decapolis, the ten towns. We know three times a year he would have gone up to Jerusalem for the seven feasts. The three in the springtime, the one in the summer, Shavuot, and then again in the fall. We know because he was the righteous Jew. He was the perfect Jew. So we know he was there. Now, he kept Torah perfectly. So we know he was there then. But the rest of the time his ministry was in the Galilee. So why would he go to Jerusalem at this time? Because he honoured that memory. He endorsed them. March the way on, on uh, November the 11th. Some of us will go to uh, to memorial. We read some names there. And we know that better men died than us so that we could be free today. He was there. There's no doubt that it was deliberate. He honoured the Maccabees by being in the temple on Hanukkah. And very interestingly, at that point, they start, start to ask him, are you the Messiah? Because he'd been telling them he was the Messiah for a long time, all through his ministry. Sometimes people believe what they want to believe. Yeah? This country's full of unbelief because so many people want to live in unbelief. I just pray that God takes the scales off eyes of people in, in our land. Sure, we should be praying. Every one of us should pray for three countries. We should pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We should pray for our own land. It's our, our land. It's our responsibility. You should choose a nation that needs the gospel and it's dark. And you should pray for that country. Mine's always been China since for 40 years. I never wanted to pray for a country. It's been China. But you could choose another one. North Korea's a good candidate. We have a good candidate next door. France needs some prayer. But we should all have that. I digressed. So why does this matter to us? In the springtime, as Purim, which, which goes back to Haman the Agagite, and uh, he was determined to eliminate the Jewish people. Had he succeeded, there would have been no Jewish people, no temple, no Messiah, no salvation. And we'd be watching a soccer game this afternoon or something. I don't know, but we wouldn't be here. This was a little different. This, this, is, this, this is another attempt by Satan. Satan failed with Haman. So this time, rather than try to destroy the Jewish people, he tried to eliminate the Jewish religion. You see, if Antiochus had succeeded, there would be people around today, and you could take their DNA, and they would be biologically Jewish. But there would be no Jewish culture. There would be no Torah-observant people Jesus wouldn't have had a culture to come into. We'll be celebrating Christmas in a week or so, two weeks. I believe that Jesus was actually born on the first day of Sukkot, which means he was circumcised eight days later on Simchat Torah, which means 
that he came into that covenant, the Jewish covenant, on the day the Jewish people were rejoicing in their law. There's a poetry there. But without that temple, there will be nothing. Without those observances, there will be nothing. There have been many, many wonderful Jewish people in the sciences and the arts, but there's only been one perfect Jew, Jesus the Messiah. But he was perfect in that culture. He absolutely perfectly kept Torah, the law or the instruction. That's how he can impute righteousness to us. Well, without that culture and without that religion, there was nothing for him to come into. Antiochus failed, and it's a blessing to all of us that he failed. We're gods today because, or we belong to God today because of the perfect Jew. He lived in a land, religion, and culture preserved by the brave Maccabees. We all have something to celebrate at Hanukkah. When um, our God called Abraham, it says in Genesis 22:18. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. Today, the Scottish family, the Scottish nation, the Welsh nation, the English nation, Northern Ireland, Ireland, those families are blessed because of Jesus Messiah. The Korean family is blessed because of Jesus Messiah. The Kosovo family is blessed because of Jesus Messiah. But he came through... Israel. In the words of uh, Jesus, he was speaking to a Samaritan woman. He rarely spoke to people who weren't Jewish. His, his ministry was actually in Judea. But he met a Samaritan woman who was taking water at a well. And she asked him about where should we worship? My people say we worship on this mountain. But the Jews say you worship in Jerusalem. And he answered, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when you shall worship neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship, looking for um, those who worship him, should worship him in spirit and in truth, which we experience this morning. We experience it so often on a Sunday morning. God inhabits the praises of his people, and we experience that, and it's the most wonderful time of the week. And we just lift our hands and hearts and praise, and he's there, he's present. But so many people just go over the next clause, You worship, you know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. We're not going to spend eternity in New London or New Paris, New Prague, New New Bucharest, New Beijing. We're going to spend eternity in the New Jerusalem. Ephesians 2.12 That in that time you were without Christ or without Messiah, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. Well, if before we were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, now we're part of the commonwealth of Israel. Does that mean we're Israelites? We're no more than Indians or British, but they're in the commonwealth. Yeah? Romans eleven seventeen, And if some of the branches be broken off, that's talking about the Jewish people, and now being a wild olive tree, we're grafted in among them. We're wild olive trees. Peter knows he's a wild olive tree. I know I'm a wild olive tree. We had some fairly reckless paths, but we've been grafted in. And with them partake us of the root and the fatness of the olive tree. That sap comes up from a Jewish root. We've been grafted. Now, I'm a dispensationalist. I believe that the church is a unique and special work of the Holy Spirit. 
but are also joined to what God has done in Israel. If you cut off that trunk, if you just cut the tree off, cut the branches off, what have you got? Dead wood. Our past, our roots in the Tanakh, the Old Testament, and Judaism, actually essential to our growth. We bless Israel, we're blessing ourselves. Um, you cut those branches off. You can do something. You let them season for a year, burn them on a fire, you get some ashes. Wow. You can let them season for a year, carve them, make a beautiful piece of furniture. My, my house in Tucson, I happen to have a sideboard. I, I kind of like it because I know the provenance. It came from the early 1950s, and uh, a married couple bought it when they were first married. And when the lady eventually became a widow, she sold everything to join her son in Australia, and I bought her dining suite off her. And it's quite nice. It's kind of 1930s design. I walk out my bedroom door in Tucson, there's this sideboard, and it's nice. But i tell you something. Over long out of that sideboard, I'm never going to walk out that bedroom door and see it with twigs and leaves and, and sprouting fruit. Because the day that piece of wood was cut off its tree... It was useless for anything. For the tree to be alive, it's got to be buried in the full counsel of God. And that includes our, our Jewish roots, our past. Barry, you got anything to close with? I just want to say thank you, Adrian, for that. It's such a blessing you know, to be able to sit and to be ministered to. But just one of the things I love about God's word is the way that it just draws us together. You know, there's, there's such a a work of the Holy Spirit, and I've seen this so many times uh, in my life, that I, I, Adrian, I knew that the theme, but I didn't ask him what he was going to say, and I wasn't worried about what he was going to say, because I knew it was going to be rooted in God's Word. And what a blessing, uh, what we've just heard. I hope that's really encouraged you. Um, as I'm sitting listening, um, it's really lovely, because I kind of now see the connection with what I'm going to be saying next week. Uh, and how we're going to springboard on from that. The theme for next Sunday, we're only going to have a slightly shorter message because we've got the children's play. But we're going to be looking at, does, and we just talk about the details uh, in God's word and why those details really do matter. And you see with this scripture here, uh, confirmation of the New Testament, this, this validation of the Feast of Hanukkah that you've been hearing about this morning. Um, and the way that the whole of God's word is just, just wonderful, just one lovely picture that ties everything together. So thank you so much for that this morning, a real blessing. Um, okay, let's just, just bow our hearts, shall we? Father, we just thank you for this time to spend together this morning, Lord, that we've been able to come and worship you in spirit and in truth. Oh, Father, it's such a privilege that we can worship you, that we can turn and kiss. Lord, that we can... Just come and, and shut out everything else and focus upon you. Father, we thank you for that which we've heard this morning. Father, we see, of course, the, the types and the shadows. Lord, we recognize that we are at a time in history that we will see the reenactment, Lord, of all those historical events that took place with uh, Lord Antiochus and, and the way that he desecrated the temple. Father, that's coming again and your word makes it clear. And we're in these days, Lord. Also, if we do, Lord, pray for the peace of Jerusalem and for all that is ahead. Father, we pray too for your church that you have called out of these roots. And, Lord, you've allowed us to be grafted in. Father, we thank you. Lord, make your church strong in this land, we pray. And, Father, we are part of that. We pray that you make us strong. Give us, Lord, the boldness to speak of the wonderful salvation that you have wrought for us. And so, Father, as we 
just fellowship now over teas and coffees, Father. Just bless our conversation. And Father, bless us through this week. And Father, just keep us growing together in knowledge and grace. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, may God richly bless you through this week.